0: Well, thank you very much. Hot-footed it from Hazelmere. Just in time uh, to get here and speak to you. It's great to be here. And so we come today to part two of Generosity and Wealth, um, because it's so good, we thought we would do it twice. And um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. So if you have a Bible, it would be great if you could find Luke 16 um, and just keep the place there. Neil spoke last week on part one. Of generosity and wealth and it was from the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and Neil focused mainly on the dangers or the potential dangers of money and wealth and also the freedom that comes with generosity and um, you know so how money is a wonderful servant but it's a terrible master and if you didn't hear Neil last week if you weren't here I'd recommend that you do that you listen you can download it on the website uh, or listen on the church app Um, Do have a listen to it because all these things kind of complement one another and they go together as a package. So this is week two on generosity, but these two weeks are, of course, part of a wider series on generosity in general. We've been talking about uh, a generosity in all areas of life, a radical generosity of heart that comes first and foremost from receiving God's generosity, his radical, lavish generosity for us and letting that affect our lives. And so this is something which permeates all areas of life, relationships, forgiveness, hospitality, how we use gifts and talents and our time, and how we use money and possessions. And if you think of all those different currencies of generosity as being like branches on a tree, well, some of those branches might naturally be healthier than others. Some branches might be stronger than others. You might be a really hospitable person, or you might be really generous with with money. But It's really about the roots of the tree. That's what's important, because if the roots of the tree are strong and deep, then the whole tree, all the branches, every area of generosity will flourish. So as I said back in the first week of this series, talking about God's grace, it's perfectly possible to be technically generous with money, but to not be radically generous. But it is impossible to be truly generous in heart, to be radically generous, and to not be exceedingly generous with money. And so the, the emphasis of this uh, series is on the roots. It's on, it's on how we become generous, where generosity actually comes from. It's about having healthy roots and having strong, deep roots. In other words, having a growing appreciation, a growing revelation of God's love for you, of his generosity to you, and letting that so fill your heart that you can't help but overflow with generosity in every area, in every currency of generosity. So the whole tree flourishes. Every branch is strengthened and grows as those roots get strengthened. But it does work the other way around as well. Because as the branches grow, as you stretch in these things, so it creates a need for those roots to get stronger and deeper still. And so our response in all of this is really important. To not be passive about it and just think, well, look, I'm going to wait until I get a greater sense of God's generosity for me so that I can then feel more generous and be more generous. No, this is about taking steps of faith in all of these areas and stretching ourselves in this um, so that it will lead us into a greater dependence on God. It will push us more into relationship with him and grow deeper roots to support these branches that are growing. So, for example, we're commanded to forgive others First and foremost, as a response to God's forgiveness for us. But we know, and we heard a couple of weeks ago when Rich spoke, that's hard. Forgiveness is a big step of faith. It's not an easy thing to do. But it's as we do it, it's, it's as we stretch ourselves and actually putting it into practice, not waiting for the feeling to forgive, which will never come. It's as we do it that we gain, through that process, an even greater appreciation, an even deeper understanding and revelation of God's forgiveness for us. So our response is really important. There are practical responses to be made. When the teaching was on forgiveness, practical response is to forgive. When when Ron spoke on hospitality, practical response is to be more hospitable. And when we talk about generosity and money, the practical response is to give or to give more, It's to take a step of faith. And that will be the response that we come to later on with the giving challenge that Neil spoke about last week. But today we're looking at one of probably... Probably one of the most confusing parables that Jesus told. You'll be glad to know. And uh, so I'm hoping I can make some sense of it for us. And it's Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. So if you have your Bibles, do follow it. Otherwise, it's on the screen. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 400. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. And the master, this is is where it gets really quite confusing here because it says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus is very clear there at the end, but in the middle, it all gets a little bit muddy, doesn't it? It's like, what's what's happening here? So what is going on in this story? We have a rich man and his manager, and the job of the manager is really important. It's a high-responsibility role, Uh, in that he's a bit like the chief operating officer of a big company. So he runs the estate. He looks after, oversees the estate, all the operations, all the goings-on, including the investment of the rich man's money. And it seems he hasn't been doing a very good job, because the rich man hears things, hears rumours. He says, you've been wasting my possessions. And he's about to fire him, which clearly is not good news for the manager. But it's even worse news, because he suddenly realises he has nowhere else to go. He's got no backup plan. He's, he's got no good relationships with people. He's no future job prospects, and there's no welfare state, of course, and so he's going to end up on the streets. This is really, really bad news for him. So he comes up with this ingenious plan of trying to gain favour with people and trying to build some good relationships with people by knocking huge amounts off the loans that they owe to his master, so that when he's fired, there's the hope of being welcomed into someone else's house. There's the possibility he might be offered a job somewhere else. But that, that's all quite straightforward, that bit. But then it gets confusing, because why would the master commend him for his actions? You know, why would he commend this man, his manager, for knocking huge amounts off the money that he is owed? That doesn't seem to make any sense. So what is going on? Well, it's highly likely that what's going on here is that the manager has added some interest of his own his own cut to these loans. Now, in the Jewish law, it was strictly forbidden to lend money and add interest to it, charge interest, because if you lent money, it was to help somebody out in need. It wasn't to make profit out of them, and they understood that. That was very, very much understood. But to get around that law, they would lend commodities instead of money, like wheat and like olive oil that we see here, and then charge interest on that. So it's very much a case of the letter of the law, certainly not the spirit of the law. Now, it could, of course, be it's the rich man who's doing this. Maybe he's the one who's saying to his manager, you must make sure you charge this amount of interest because I want to make profit here. Could be that, but I think it's more likely that it's the manager because he is described in the parable by Jesus as being a dishonest manager. So it's more likely that it's the manager who's doing this. He's charging interest. So what he's doing in reducing the repayment amount is simply cutting out his own commission out of this deal so the rich man still receives back what he's supposed to get his loans the loan is paid off the manager is hoping to gain favor and goodwill with others in the process now that makes a bit more sense of the story because that explains why the master commends the manager for his shrewdness for his foresight in taking a short-term hit to look out for his future to provide for his future Jesus himself notes in verse 8 that the people of this world Are more shrewd than are people of the light. In other words, people in the world, Jesus is saying, give more thought and care and attention to their physical well being and their future than worshippers of God give to their spiritual well being and their eternal future. And so Jesus is using here the example of a man who is very clever and very shrewd in a secular framework to speak to his people, because it starts with Jesus saying, it says Jesus told his disciples this parable. So he's using this secular example to speak to his people about how you use money in the kingdom of God. And so there's a couple of main points I'm going to draw from what we see in this parable. And the first is this, we are stewards of money that isn't ours, We are stewards of money that isn't ours. Jesus is likening his followers to this manager in the story who's been given a lot of responsibility. He's been put in charge of investing money that isn't his. And so he has the responsibility to use that money in line with the values and the wishes of the one whose money it is. The money belongs to the rich man, to his master. So the manager mustn't treat the money as if it's his own. He mustn't lose sight of whose money it really is as he's using it, as he's spending it, as he's investing it. But that is a principle that is true for every single one of us in here. Whether you have lots of money or no money at all, it is true for all of us. Because if you believe in God, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, then you also have to believe that actually it's all God's money. Whatever you have, it's all God's and that you are the steward responsible to him for how you use what you've been given. We see this in the early church. So in Acts 4, it says no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. But they shared everything they had. We have this amazing situation in the early church where where people are not in need because people are sharing what they have. People are selling property and land, bringing the money to the apostles for it to be distributed among the poor. So nobody's in need. And it comes back to this idea that no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. They got it. They understood it. And it's so vital that we get this as well. Because if we don't get ownership right, we won't get generosity with money and possessions right. Because we are born selfish. And I, I think we know that. I think that's not an earth-shattering revelation for anybody. We're born selfish. It doesn't, we know you don't have to teach a young child to be selfish. You don't have to teach a young child the word mine. And yet, it seems to be one of the first words they pick up and use repeatedly. Mine. Mine. And it's not something we naturally grow out of either. We are naturally self-centered, selfish people. So we would have the inclination to think, it's my money. It's mine. I worked hard. Look at what I have built. I've worked hard for this. I earned this, so it's mine. But who gave you the ability to earn money in the first place? Some have the ability to earn more money than others. Who gave you the ability to do that? in the first place. It's all God. You see, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, you can't think like that because it's all God's. It's not your money. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's all his. Everything you have is a gift from God. Sometimes people might put something in the offering and think, you know, this week, I'm gonna give a bit back to God. You can't give back to God because it's his anyway. We've gotta get this. It says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And do you know what the Hebrew word translated everything means? It means everything. Yeah. 1 Chronicles 29, King David says, Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. King David had this right. He got it right. We've got to get this right. We've got to get ownership and stewardship the right way around in our minds, in our lives because here's the thing. This is the this is the hard hitting point. Okay? If we're not radically generous with money when God has commanded us to be, which he does, then it's not just stinginess. It's robbery. Because it's not yours. Now, I know that point requires a bit of explanation, which is coming, because I don't want to leave us feeling condemned. And that's not the aim, but to feel challenged. But when it comes down to it, if your master gives you money, and he tells you, his servant, what he wants you to do with it, and you don't, it amounts to robbery. That's the language God uses when he talks to the Israelites in Malachi chapter 3. He says, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? in tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So just to explain that, there was a requirement in the Old Testament, there was a requirement on the Israelites to tithe. Tithe means 10%. To at least tithe. Tithes and offerings. So there was a requirement on the Israelites to give away at least 10% of everything. And God had been very clear with them in instructing them how they were to use the resources that he had given them. And when they didn't do it, he called it robbery. You are robbing me. He's the owner we are the stewards. Now let's just talk a bit more about tithing, because tithing, of course, is a guide that many people still find very helpful today in deciding what to give. I certainly found it very helpful when I was first challenged on this, probably about 20 years ago or so, first challenged about giving, and I was glad to have this principle to go by, because I didn't have a clue what it meant to give. I didn't, I didn't know, so I was glad to have that, and many people still find that a useful guide, but beware Be aware of this because tithing can very, very easily become a problem and it can become an idol from a couple of points of view. So for some, it's just the sheer impossibility of it, the seeming impossibility, because you work out how much money that means, 10%. Well, hang on, that's you work out how much money that is and it feels like being asked to run a marathon without any training whatsoever tomorrow. And as a goal, it feels so impossible that therefore you don't start to give, and so you give nothing. It gets overwhelming. So, from that point of view, it can be an issue. Neil mentioned this last week. He said when he first heard teaching on this, it floored him. And they didn't start giving 10%. They gave, and this is really important, they gave according to their faith, to what they had faith for. But the key is, he started giving. They started giving. It's really important. Now, tithing can become an idol from the other side as well in the sense that I tithe, therefore I have arrived. You know, I give my tithe. I can still lead a very comfortable life. And I'm fulfilling my obligation to God, which makes you just like the rich young ruler in the story last week. Doing things out of duty, leading to pride, and no heart change going on. That's not what God is after either. What if he wants you to give more? What if God is asking you to give more? Now, tithing isn't taught explicitly. It's a biblical principle, but it's not explicitly taught in the New Testament. Jesus refers to it a couple of times, but it doesn't get taught explicitly. But do you know what? The standards in the New Testament are even higher because the New Testament talks about generosity. And... uh, I don't have time to go into all the different passages in the New Testament, but let me just give a summary of what the New Testament teaches us about giving. We are taught to give first to God before anything else. First fruits, the first thing that comes out of what you receive each month, that is what you put aside, that goes to God. You never consider it part of your your spending, what you can spend. You give it to God. First to God, we're taught to give regularly, and systematically every month or every week. We're taught to give in proportion to our income because some earn more, some earn less. We're taught to give in proportion to what we have. We're taught to give generously and sacrificially, but crucially, absolutely crucially, we are taught to give with great joy and with no sense of compulsion. You've got to hear that. Great joy and no sense of compulsion the new testament standard is far higher than any old testament standard because it teaches joyful sacrificial generosity which means there's not a hard and fast rule to follow as much as we would like there to be sometimes and we can prefer that but that can lead us into problems as well sometimes it does mean though regularly reviewing with god what you give asking him how much he wants you to give how does he want you to use the money that he has given you because some have less and some have more and what is exceedingly generous for one person is exceedingly stingy for another so what is God asking you to do that's the key question now I came across this video clip this week it's a excerpt of an interview with someone called Steve Tibbet and Many of you will know who Steve is. Steve leads uh, King's Church London, which is a large, multi-site New Frontiers church in London. And ever since we've been in New Frontiers, um, Steve's been the key guy for us. He's been our oversight. He's the one we make ourselves accountable to. We invite him to come into the eldership. He's coming in this week um, and he, he challenges, he asks questions, and he encourages us. And he's been a huge help. So this is a guy who we value and whose opinion we value greatly. And so I thought it'd be good for us to hear a bit about what Steve has to say. As we watch this video clip, listen out, not only for the wisdom that's in here, but also for the grace that's in here. Let's watch that clip. Can you just remind us and, and teach some of us uh, what it is we believe about giving at King's?
1: Yeah, well, it's a huge subject uh, and Im- an important one. For, for me, it's a uh, fundamentally it's a discipleship issue. It's it's about worship. It's about response to the grace we've received in Christ. Uh, I know when I first became a Christian, uh, I walked across the room mm. and. Um, Uh, said to my pastor, I want to get baptised, but also started tithing immediately. I'd kind of worked out, before I committed to Christ, some of the outworkings of his Lordship in my Mm. life. One was to to get baptised, and one was to to give and get my money lined up Mm. with following Jesus. And Jesus spoke a lot about money. And he said, doesn't he? He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And the God of materialism it's like it becomes like a priority to us. We put our, our faith in money. We, in a sense, we trust money more than God. And as you give, you're dying to that, and you say, no, ultimately, I've got faith. I trust in God yeah. uh, to provide for me and uh, to uh, provide all I need in, in life. Um, we teach stewardship, which means it's like, give out of what you have, not have what you don't have. And in that sense, that would be very differ- different to a prosperity message. Yeah which I think treats God a bit like a slot machine. Uh, and you know, God God can God can bless you when you give with more finances, but not necessarily. He might bless you in other ways. Uh, and so we don't want people giving so they get more money back. Mm. Uh, and that can just get you into debt. And I've known people that have done that and found themselves in that situation. So we want people to give out of mm. what they have. Mm. Uh, we want them to give them generously and sacrificially. Uh, I'm asked, should, people tithe. I think that's a really good guide. I, Deb and I have always practiced that in our life, mm. in fact, over and beyond that, and we do it before tax. That's what we've decided. Uh, but I think the, the principle taught through 2 uh, Corinthians 8 and 9 about proportional giving is also very, very important. Mm. So God sees the heart. He's ultimately not interested in the amount. He's interested in the heart. That's why he values the widow's might. As much as the the very rich person mm. uh, but i would expect out of the teaching of proportional giving that there will be some here that should give way beyond the tithe mm. Mm. because they're they're being blessed with tens if not hundreds of thousands mm. of pounds and so therefore they should i think as one two and three six of fairly direct <laughs> to what yeah. he's all richly he commands rich people Uh, to give, not something that we do too (laughs) often around here, uh, but there's a big challenge for those of us who have had much to be generous. Mm. Uh, So there's some of the values. I think in the end, your bank statement communicates your priorities, your values, your commitments. Mm. So if you look at your bank statement, you'll find out whether sky sports are more important than tithing, Mm. and that reveals something about your your heart, ultimately, Mm. before God. Mm. Uh, So that's some of the key values that shape our how we teach about giving here at Kings.
0: Sky Sports, eh? Whoa. <laughs> Steady on, Steve. Um, I just wanted to show that, because it underlines, for me, it underlines the fact that we've been trying to get across all the time that giving is primarily a discipleship issue. It's a heart issue. It's, it's a response of worship. It's a response to what God has done for you. And as we give, as we stretch ourselves in that, actually, it is a putting to death of the love of money. And it's putting faith in God. But the line that Steve used there, I hope you heard it. He said, give out of what you have, not what you don't have. Because ultimately, God is more interested in the heart than in the amount. It is about the heart. Thinking in terms of percentages is helpful. And it is biblical, you know, proportional giving. It's a helpful tool and it will feature, it will be part of the giving challenge that you'll see later. But this is not ultimately... About percentages, it is ultimately about the heart. And this is hugely challenging for all of us, whatever your situation. This is a big, big challenge for us all. But God is full of grace. He knows you, He understands your situation. He understands, for example, that some may find themselves in the position of wanting to be able to give more, but constrained in that. And there are many different reasons that that could be constrained in that. He knows. He understands. He's after your heart. That's what this is about. The key is to listen to what is he saying to you about this. What's he asking you to do? Because he doesn't ask you to do anything that's impossible. He will ask you, though, to do things that require faith and that stretch faith. He will challenge us on this if we allow him to. He will challenge you as to how you are using Money. Are you using money unwisely? Are you using money in a wasteful way? Are you using it in a way that that unnecessarily restricts how, how much you can give, how generous you can be? He will challenge us on this if we let him because it's such he knows what a big part of our life and our heart that this is and that it can become. But we are stewards of money that isn't ours. So we have a responsibility to use it in line with the values and wishes of the owner. That's the first point to draw from this parable. The second thing is this. Put God's money into things that last. Put God's money into things that last. The manager in the parable was commended for his shrewdness and for his foresight. What did he actually do? Well, in cutting out his commission, he limited his short-term financial gain, and he invested in something much, much better and far more lasting because he invested in relationships. And he understood that in the long run, that was going to be far better than just having as much money as I can grab hold of now. It just makes sense. It makes sense to put money into things that last to put money into things that will increase in value rather than the things that are going to lose value quickly. And Jesus is very clear in here that one day all of it will be gone anyway. Your money will be gone. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, when your worldly wealth is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And I will unpack that a little bit more in a minute because I think it needs a bit of unpacking. So it's another one of these quite confusing statements. But the reality is there's no safe investment in this world. There's nothing materially here that cannot fail. Everything eventually will be gone. Nothing will last. And so we are to invest, put money into eternal things. Well, what does that mean? I mean, we can think of it in a logical way. We can take a logical approach to this and kind of think, well, Jesus is building his church. The church is really important to Jesus. The church is all about building the kingdom of God, which is eternal, which is why we give to the church. But that doesn't really stir us. It doesn't really stir our hearts. It may lead us to give. It may lead us to give in a dutiful way, but not necessarily joyfully. So let's come back to what Jesus says with that rather strange line that I read before. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does this mean? Worldly wealth, he just talking about money, possessions, property, anything that we have in this life that you cannot take with you into the next life. Now, one of the commentators that I've been reading this week, a guy called Michael Wilcock, um, he says about this, he says, although these things, uh, by which he means things associated with worldly wealth. Although these things belong to this life only, says Jesus, yet what will happen to you then, when you pass into that life, will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Not, not, not if you will pass into that life, but when. What will happen depends on what you do now. What you do with money and possessions now has eternal impact. It has eternal implications. And then he says this, make sure that your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Make sure your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Let me explain that a bit. Jesus knows exactly what we need. He knows what makes us tick, right? We will tend to look to money and things for a sense of significance, either through boasting through what we have, about what we have, or through wishing we could have more. But Jesus knows, actually, that is not where true significance lies. True significance is in relationships. It's in love and being loved that we feel truly significant. We look to money to make us feel secure, but there's no security in money and possessions. It can be gone in an instant. It is not a secure thing at all. Jesus knows, actually, we only find true security in love. And he knows this because it's what we were made for. It's how we were made. It's, it's how we're designed. We are inherently relational beings. Whether you're an introvert like me or you're an extrovert like others, we are inherently relational beings. We need one another. And why? Because God is inherently relational. It's because that's what he is like. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity eternally coexisting in this beautiful... Dance of love and perfect, loving, submissive relationship. It's just beautiful. That's what God is like, and so that's what we are like, because we're made in his image, which means that we need each other, and we need love. And God knew, he saw that right at the beginning. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. Adam had God, but he knew he also needed others. It is not good for man to be alone. We need each other, we need love. That is where we find true fulfillment and true wealth, being surrounded by people who... Love you and who you can love. But we know that even that is not perfect in this world, in this life. That love actually can be more a source of pain than it is a source of comfort or pleasure. It's only in eternity that we will know that true wealth. Jonathan Edwards was an American preacher from the 18th century. And he wrote a sermon called, Heaven is a World of Love. And in this sermon, he identified five barriers to that fulfilment of love, finding that fulfilment of love. Things that make love a source of pain here in this life, but that will be removed in the next life, in eternity. So the first thing he said was, we all want to be loved for our own sake. We all want to be loved for our own sake. It's very painful to feel that someone loves you, only to find out that they're actually only loving you for other things, for what they can get, that they're using you in some way. And I imagine we've all experienced that, and I imagine we've all inflicted that on others. I know I certainly have an example popped into my head this week. As I was thinking, I remember, probably nine or ten years old, I wanted to go to a friend's house, and I remember this guy saying to me, do you only want to be my friend because I've got a Spectrum computer? And I said no, the truth was yes. And he saw through it. You know, We all want to be loved for our own sake. Now here in this life, that doesn't happen very often, but there... There, in eternity, in the next life, you will be fully loved for who you are. Second thing is we want to be able to express love freely, without any impediment at all. But pride, selfishness, pettiness, defensiveness, self-pity, all these things get in the way. Most days I find situations where I didn't express my love for my family in the way that I wanted to. And afterwards I think, why did I act like that? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Or why didn't I say what I should have said? Here, in this life, there are many barriers to expressing love fully. It's internal barriers, but there, there we will love fully. We will be able to express love fully. Third thing, we want to love with complete mutuality. There's pain in loving someone who doesn't love you as much or who doesn't love you back at all. But there, there, love will be perfect. And it'll be perfectly mutual. Fourth thing is when we love someone, we can't stand them being unhappy. You know, someone once said that when you have children, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And that is true. It is true. If you love people, you will get your heart broken, not because they're being mean to you, but because of their situations in their life, because they're unhappy. If you love people, you will be brokenhearted. The only way to avoid that is to not love anybody, which goes against our nature. If you love people, you will. your heart will always be broken, but there, there, that won't be the case. It will be very different. Fifth thing is the pain of losing people you love. Because in this life, we will lose everybody, either through our own death or through the death of others. You can sit around the table with your family, and one person at that table will experience losing every other person around the table. There's great pain in this, but there, there. It's love without parting. It's, it's love without being broken-hearted. It's love with complete and perfect mutuality. It's fully expressed, and you will be fully, fully loved for who you are. See, the love that we need, the love that we're designed for, and the love that we crave isn't here. It's not here. It's there. It's there. It's in eternity. And so we invest money in eternal things. You know, it's why we... It's why we, we look after the, the poor. It's why we care about the poor and put money into helping the poor. And I know lots of people here will be doing that. Lots of people, um, obviously the church does that, but also in, in your own lives, you'll be sponsoring children and all sorts of things. It's why we do that because people who are made in the image of God are eternal. They last forever. Money doesn't. So you put money into something that's eternal. People last forever and the word of God lasts forever. And when we bring the word of God into connection with people and they believe it and they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ for themselves and they receive his salvation, their lives are changed forever and for eternity, then they become brothers and sisters who you will never lose and who eventually you will love and they will love you perfectly and eternally, that love that we crave so much. This is the fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. And that's what the church is. It's what the church is all about. We're all about bringing people into connection with the Word of God, bringing people into connection with the love of God, the amazing truth that we have received and believed and had our lives changed. We want to bring people into connection with that and see their lives changed, see them saved. You know, Jesus is building His church. And I absolutely, firmly, 100% believe that the local church is the hope of the world. Because Jesus chooses to use us for whatever reason, we are the hope of the world. And so put your money into that. Put your money into that. Put your money into the work of the kingdom that changes people forever. Changes people for eternity. Send your money on ahead for eternal things. God has said to us, I have many people in this place. That is people who are yet to be reached, but who will be reached by us as we seek to build the kingdom of God in High Wycombe in partnership with Jesus. It's exciting. That is something worth getting excited about. This church is tremendously generous. Huge generosity in this church. But what if, what if we could become an epicenter of a kind of a ground-shaking generosity that touches every single area of this town that God has called us to? That's something to dream about. and it's something worth dreaming about. Now, In Malachi chapter 3, having challenged his people to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, God then says, test me in this. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, as Steve said, we don't give in order to receive back financially. Even though God can sometimes do that, we don't give to receive back. That's prosperity teaching. It's the prosperity gospel and it's an utter abomination God hates it, and we need to hate that kind of teaching. It is wrong. We don't give to get back, but God does say, test me in this. Test me in this. Take a step of faith. It's exactly what we're inviting you to do over the next three months of this giving challenge and beyond, and beyond that. But I know that this is challenging. This is really, really challenging for all of us. But let me finish on this, because as you're deciding how to respond to this, because you might say be thinking, well, I still don't know what to give. I, you know, I, I don't know if I can give. I don't know if I can give any more. As you're thinking about this and as you're deciding how to respond, keep your focus on what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 8 as he's encouraging the church to give generously to the offering for the poor in Jerusalem. What he says to them, he says, don't do this because I'm telling you. I'm not commanding you to give. Do it out of love. Do out of response to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who gave it all, who lost all his wealth to make us who were his enemies into his friends into his brothers and sisters so that we can be with him and we can be with each other forever, for eternity, in that perfect, mutual, wonderful, loving relationship that we all crave so much. Focus on that. Focus on Jesus, what he has done, his generosity to you, and the results of that in your life. Focus on that and then use your money. Use the money that God has given you in light of that. Amen.